Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. In this season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today is Heather. Heather, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is Heather Pendleton. I originally came to Augusta 12 years ago for nursing school. So I'm a nurse. I don't currently work as a nurse, but I stay at home with my kids. And um, I am highly relational, but also pretty introverted. So my favorite thing to do is sit on the couch, curled up with a cup of coffee. Amber, if you come over, you can have your tea. Okay, (laughs) thank you. You know that about me. I appreciate this. Yes. Um, And just talk with a new friend or a good friend in the evening. I love with friends to be on the couch with wine and a cheese and charcuterie board. Yeah, that nice. has been my favorite thing to do with friends in the last couple of years. So yeah, a little about my family. Um, I'm married to Brooks. He is a physical therapist and we met through community here at First Press. We've been married right at five years. We just celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary, which Congrats. feels momentous. It yeah. feels really exciting deal half a decade deal yeah yeah especially when you say it that way half a decade (laughs) and two kids and two kids yeah Yeah. so samuel is almost three and a half and abigail is almost two and we are expecting a little boy number three in august so excited to add another one to the crazy bunch Mm, love that So the first things first question, when I first thought about it, I was like, I've never quit a job, but I think it's because the word quit can have to me a negative connotation. But as I started reflecting over my life, I realized, Heather, you've quit quite a few jobs. But the first job that I quit was my job right out of nursing school. I worked at Southern Family Medical Center, which is a family practice in South Augusta. Loved my job, worked with some really incredible people. But I quit about a little over two years in to go on staff with Campus Outreach in Cusco, Peru. Mm -hmm. So I was there. And um, actually, when I came back from Peru, I, I came back because I was pretty depressed and needed some help physically and emotionally. And after some healing, God opened up that same job for me. So I went back to Southern Family, and which was a really sweet blessing. Then I got married, had my son, and I quit again. So I've actually quit the same job twice. <laughs> but they still let me come visit. You still have good things to say about them, and they Absolutely. still have good things to say about you. Yeah, I love that place, love the people. They love mm-hmm. Jesus and just really sweet community and family over there. That's so fun. I was resonating with what you're saying about quitting. Like, oh, that feels, yeah, negative. Like, oh, I don't quit. I don't give up. Ew. No one wants to do that. But lo and behold, right. Can I, we get a synonym? I do. Get a synonym. <laughs> Ceased that job. Ceased to work at that job. Followed the Lord's calling somewhere else. And I like that. Sounds, I love how you church that up for us. <laughs> right. Well, you know. <laughs> Went in rum. So I have had so many hilarious jobs over my lifetime and work ethic was something our family valued a lot. Like laziness may have been the chief sin at our house. So from an early age, like my parents would just invent work for us to do. Case in point, my brother dug by hand, not because we did not own equipment to help do this, but he dug by hand irrigation to go all around our very large yard. Stop. With like, I don't even know what it was, a pickaxe? That's probably not right. <laughs> I don't know, like, a big rough. <laughs> a very small tool. I don't know the name of. A spoon. <laughs> a spoon. <laughs> so that, that kind of thing. But I remember when I was super young, this was 
it's just a funny job to me. But my dad planted for my me and my little brother about an acre of okra. And he's like, okay, this is that yours. That is a lot of okra. It was a, it was a lot of okra. And uh, are we taking callers? If my mama calls in and says, Aaron, it was like one row. <laughs> it felt like an acre, right? It, it was a, like an acre. It was a lot of okra. And every morning we were expected to get up before swim practice and go cut the okra and we would sell it to the local Piggly Wiggly. And I felt like a bank robber that summer (laughs) because I was probably, you know, 10 years old and they were just paying us 20 bucks or whatever a bushel to bring in this okra. And he let us keep it like he planted it, intended to it, but we got to keep the cash. So that's impressive. It was an invented job. I didn't ask for that. It's a pretty cool. It was a legit job. You yeah. got paid. And it was, it, it, it's yeah. true. It's yeah. true. It was it was legit work. But, but yeah, you, I think that that's probably like my first job that I quit. Like, I did don't, you quit or did well, you just? I didn't request that the okra next summer, so okay. I don't think I had. I was not. Re, I didn't reapply for my job. Okay, so I quit. And yeah, that's yeah. Or the Lord calls me elsewhere. The Lord calls you elsewhere. <laughs> he called me to the tomatoes. <laughs> to a different acre. Well, I've been called to the peas before. I used to have to pick and shell peas. Oh, what kind? That matters. I don't know. What do you call them? Sweet peas? I, I don't mean, know. the kind that you shell. Zipper peas. Like, they're, you know, peas, All I know peas is they are very peas difficulty. and they were in a pod. Yes. And they were green. <laughs> And we would sit down and watch movies and just shell endless amounts. So cute. I'm talking about like a bucket. I mean, if you talk about like mm-hmm. a big bucket of peas, that's a lot of peas. Yeah. And so I do remember picking peas. My thumb peas. cuticle is hurting right now, that's actually. Right. See, you, you're driving. I, you're I driving you. with me. Yep. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought about that, but I did technically quit that, I guess. Probably I would sit down on the ground in the middle of the garden and quit. And my dad would come out and talk to me about how each pea was important. So don't let one go. Don't quit. Quitting has a negative connotation to all of us. And today in our passage, we are going to see that some of Jesus' disciples decide to quit him, essentially. Mm. And they quit him. I like how you tied that in there. You like that? You like that, Ty? They quit him because, in all seriousness, he says something to them that is so offensive, hard to accept, that they walk away. And so we are going to talk about that today. Before we get there, just a brief little summary. Last week, we talked about John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman and the harvest of faith that followed. And John tells us that from Samaria, Jesus travels back to Cana, where he heals the son of a local Gentile official, further emphasizing the point that Jesus is the one who gives life to the world. And at this point in Jesus's ministry, the overall Jewish response to his words and to his works has been curiosity, wonder, reservation. But at the beginning of chapter five, a shift begins to occur towards strong and sometimes official opposition. So Jesus draws the ire of Jewish leaders and those under their influence when he heals a lame man on the Sabbath. They deeply resent Jesus's refusal to play by their rules and honor their man-made religious traditions. They can't, they won't accept that Jesus is offering them the healing they need, which is himself. The rest of chapter five expounds on Jesus's claims to divine authority that give him the right to present himself as the only son of God. In chapter five, verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so then we come to chapter six. And after facing this kind of strong opposition in Jerusalem, Jesus has traveled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where he goes up on a mountain with his disciples. Other gospel writers let us know that Jesus and his disciples had a desire to be together in a solitary place. But a large crowd follows them, having seen the signs that Jesus was performing on the sick. Jesus welcomes them. And the gospel writer Luke tells us that he taught them about the kingdom of God and healed their sick. 
and then moved with compassion, he performs a sign that many of us are familiar with. And this sign that Jesus performs and then interprets in our passage today is meant to teach that Jesus alone is the giver of life. If you have not read John chapter 6, I suggest you hit the pause button and do so now and ask yourself as you read, do I accept Jesus's message? And then come back to hear what we have to say. So chapter 6 begins with a sign that many of us are familiar with, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And ladies, I want us to talk about, is there anything in this passage? It's the feeding of the 5,000, but then it's also Jesus's discourse on the bread of life. What in this passage surprised you, sparked your curiosity, made you think a little bit more? Heather, start us off. Sure. Well, I definitely think that when you hear someone say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, I mean, that's... That's interesting to say the least, but Mm -hmm. really it's particularly shocking. It was a shocking statement and it caused a ruckus among the people. I mean, the scripture says the Jews were, they disputed amongst themselves. If we keep reading the disciples, I mean, they were grumbling. They didn't want to walk with Jesus. And I mean, it's because they took, they took a statement literally, and it is quite a grotesque statement. But I think that if we look back on verse 35, we gain some understanding about what Jesus was trying to say. Verse 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And verse 47, which says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so he said to the people, he said to the crowds, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then he says, whoever believes has eternal life. And so I think what he's saying is that by eating his flesh, eating his flesh is believing, drinking his blood is believing, and he promises eternal life to those who believe in him. And um, what's really beautiful is that I think he's hinting now, and I really want to hear what y'all have to say, because I grasped at this from my interpretation of the passage, but I think he's hinting now at something that I think nobody would fully understand until after his death and his resurrection. What he's calling us to believe in is that the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood— his death would pay the penalty for our sin and that his perfect righteousness is freely given to us. Well, and it helps to to know that he has just performed a sign, a, a miraculous sign where he has literally fed them bread, right? He's taken five loaves and two fishes. He's multiplied that and he's fed 5,000 men. So more if you count women and children right. that were with them and they've come to him and they they want more of that, like that special power. Like you, you can you can pull down bread from heaven. Let, let's see that again. And what's interesting is that sign took place around Passover. Mm-hmm. So they've got all of the implications in their minds, Passover, Exodus from Egypt, in the desert, how are they fed, manna from heaven, this bread, Moses, another prophet to come, maybe it's Jesus, that national zeal is high around Passover. They want a king. You know, they mm-hmm. say that Jesus has to retreat from them after he performs this sign because he knows that they want to take him by force and make him king. And so they've got this this desire for this bread, but all they understand it is in worldly in worldly terms. And he says later, you know, you're working for the bread that eventually perishes. I mean, Moses fed them manna in the desert, but they still died. And I'm offering you something different. But I do think, because I've always thought what you said, that that was like he was being kind of shocking, you know, whoever eats my my flesh and drinks my blood. And that was what was off-putting to them. But as I studied some and read about it more, I thought, you know, he really was using a metaphor 
and a strong metaphor, but not an uncommon metaphor. He just had spoke to the Samaritan woman about being the living water. There's other places in the Old Testament that speak about eating God's word and drinking. And and so I don't know that they necessarily would have thought he's talking about cannibalism. I think that they did understand he's using this as a metaphor. But I think what was off-putting is that he was saying, this is it. Like you get life through me only. I mean, y'all are batting this around so beautifully. Um, so you see in this passage, obviously he's speaking with Hebrew people that are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. So you see all these types and antitypes. You see John using these festivals as scenery and timeline. Like obviously he's asking of that first century Christian to pull up like that narrative from the Old Testament. And we see John saying, because Jesus said, I am the substance of these festivals. Like you're saying, I am the fulfillment of these things that you see in the Old Testament. I'm the fulfillment of the temple. I'm the fulfillment of the serpent. I'm the true manna, the true water, the true fiery pillow, the true Moses, the true law, the true lamb, all those things that you see in the Old Testament. Like he's saying, that is me. I am that guy. I am the substance of those things. So I think it is a metaphor. And then it also is like that true substance. And I'm, he's like, I am taking this to the uttermost. So at this point in the gospel, we already get the feeling that Jesus is taking the shape and the fulfillment of Israel's hope eternal. And I think that's so exciting yeah. mm-hmm. because you see Jesus talking about, and then obviously New Testament, other New Testament writers talking about in their letters that we are Israel. We are God's chosen. We are his people. So I look forward to talking this out because this is such a rich passage like it looks back Mm -hmm. and it looks forward like we're seeing Mm -hmm. both like we're in the almost in the middle Mm -hmm. like not quite if jesus death is the middle but we're getting to that point and it is a very exciting place to study so let's consider how the characters in this text approached and respond to jesus we talked about about that a little bit but how do we see their actions and words um, and what do they teach us about our own So we definitely see them pursue Jesus. I mean, they had just, as you mentioned, Amber, they had just seen Jesus perform the miracle where he had fed the multitude with just a few loaves and bread, uh, loaves of bread and fish. And so they are in pursuit of Jesus and they come and they're asking him these questions. But we find out from Jesus because he knows their hearts, right, that they are coming with the wrong motivation or their their ultimate goal maybe isn't what he wanted them to see. And so... um, It was good for me to think through the question that I thought summarized a theme of this passage. Am I pursuing the gift or am I pursuing the giver? Um, I think it's easy for me to judge the hearts and the actions of the characters in this passage. Jesus is telling them, you want this physical bread. I came to give you something eternal. I came to give you eternal bread, and I am the way to that. Um, But it's really good reminder for me to continually be analyzing my own heart because my words and my actions may appear one way, but God knows. And I can usually tell upon reflection if my heart and my actions and my words are righteous. Um, I love the psalm that talks about a weaned child that sits contentedly with its mother. And a weaned child sits with its mother not because they want food because they're no longer breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Um, The weaned child sits with its mother because he loves its mother and knows that the mother loves him. And so I want that to be the way that I am with the Lord. I don't want to be pursuing God for what he can give me or the physical bread. Um, I want to sit with God because I know he loves me and because I love him. And I want that relationship that he's called me to, that he's made me for. So I think seeing how they approach Jesus seeing how their actions and words were towards Jesus 
And then seeing how Jesus calls out their heart's motivations was a good reminder for me to be checking my own heart. So I think what you're talking about, Heather, you see Jesus meeting these real physical needs. He's acknowledging that we're humans. He knows our frame. Like he's feeding people like that is part of his ministry, mm-hmm. like meeting our real needs. And and so much of his teaching is happening around mealtime. He's feeding people. He's in people's homes, people. And I love that I've been doing some uh, ELA homework with my sixth grader. And I love how he breaks it down. Like, you know, you see this tension in the story or this conflict. And some of the tension that you see in John six is like the subplot of the Pharisees. Like they're not necessarily like front and center in this narrative. But you see that the Pharisees have these very holy meals. And they're like celebrating their purity and their separateness and how we're special. And Jesus is dining with, you know, the possible ragamuffin people that are following him around or the going into sinners houses or tax collectors houses, like the opposite of the Pharisees. And even obviously, if you look back into the Old Testament law, like you see that there is a holiness that is attached to food in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, no, my holiness is actually, actually bigger than that. It's my holiness that is contagious here and I'm going to spread my holiness to you. Like I'm bigger than the sinfulness that you're bringing to me. I'm coming to bring you my holiness. So I think the the main thing we see here is that he's opening up the invitation of the kingdom of God. What I love about what y'all are saying is that it's the acknowledgement that the Lord does provide. Jesus does provide the things that we need physically. Mm -hmm. He did that sign out of compassion for them because he knew quite simply they're going to have to walk home and they hadn't eaten all day and they may pass out on the way. That's not in this, in John's gospel account, but it's in another gospel account. So he cares about those physical needs. He cares about our physical needs. And he does that sign with intent to both meet that physical need, but point beyond it. Right. And that's kind of the idea of a sign. You know, you're saying, Aaron, he's inviting these people into the kingdom. They've come because they've seen him heal. They recognize that they have a need that he can supply. They may not recognize their sin need at the moment, but they recognize their physical limitations, needs, brokenness. And so he meets those needs and doesn't despise doing that. And yet wants them to see that through what he does in that way, he's inviting them into something more, something that lasts longer, that's eternal life, that isn't just for that moment. And if you think about a sign, let's say I want to go to Hilton Head and I get far can enough. Can I come? I, yes, you can come. Okay, if you bring good. the charcuterie board and the Absolutely. wine. Absolutely. <laughs> Done. And you have the sign, right? And you get to the sign maybe on the outskirts of town and it says Hilton Head and you just stop at the sign. You take out your beach chair, pull out jacuzzi of, of, you know, sparkling water and sit down and start drinking it in sunshine. Well, you have not really arrived. You're at the sign, but hey, go on to the beach. You get to the really good stuff. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying. Mm. You're working for this. That's so much less than what Mm. I'm going to give you. And their construct was about what they understood, what they felt like they could work for, what they felt like they could earn and what they understood of the world. And that's and Jesus is, Jesus was trying to expand their vision of who he is and what he offered. So I think for me, it just it was a reminder of that they came expecting one thing. And for some of them, when they didn't get what they expected, they turned away. And it was a reminder to me that when my expectations are not met in the way that I want them to be, instead of turning away, can I trust that the Lord is showing me something deeper about who he is that is beyond what I understand 
and that by faith, I can trust that. So along those lines, we're speaking about challenging. In what ways did this passage further challenge your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? Yeah, so this passage um, made me kind of ask myself, do I trust that Jesus truly satisfies like he says he does? Do I really believe that the bread of life is good and better than physical bread? And it was a sentimental question for me to ponder because these were the questions that I was pondering as God led me to himself back when I was in nursing school. I was on an SMI in Peru going down the Amazon in a boat And our Bible study that week was all about satisfaction, all about joy. And I remember it made me ponder, what am I looking for in life? Where's my satisfaction coming from? And I realized in that moment, my life feels like I'm always chasing these things. I'm never, I'm never truly satisfied because I'm always looking for the next thing to satisfy me. Because a good grade is only a good grade until the next test, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, everyone wants the attention from boys, but I had had zero luck up until that point in my life. Um, And, you know, partying with friends is really fun until you wake up the next morning and you feel horrible. So all of those fleeting moments of satisfaction left me upon reflection feeling really empty. All of those sources of satisfaction that I had been chasing continually really my whole life, um, different things in different seasons left me feeling so empty. But God through his word tells me, he tells us in this passage that he is the true satisfaction. He doesn't just come to meet our physical needs. He is a beautiful savior who does that, but he also comes to meet our spiritual needs in a much deeper way than we can ever imagine in a much deeper way than this world can offer. And so, like I said, through his word and through the testimony of other people, um, he really affirmed that to me and continues to show that to me in different seasons, even in seasons where I've been just really deep in the struggle, um, deep in the valley. So I was really challenged to think through what worldly things do I turn to now for satisfaction because my life looks very different Mm -hmm. than it did um, back then. So nowadays, what am I tempted to think is my physical bread? And so I think I tend to seek satisfaction in an orderly home, peace in my relationship with other people. That's big for me because I'm so relational and happy and healthy kids. Mm. And God really faithfully and lovingly presses into my heart in those areas. Um, Just even through reading this passage, just really sweet to remind me that he is my joy, that I am safe and secure in him, that I have eternal hope. And he's really sweet to do that because my home is definitely not always orderly as evidenced by the last three months of my life where I could barely (laughs) roll over off the couch to do my chores. And I definitely don't always have peace with others. Mm. I had a fight with my husband on Saturday night and it tears me up. But God is really sweet to remind me, like I said, that he he's all I need, that he is my satisfaction, that he's my eternal bread. Well, I love the way that you can put words to the specifics at different stages of life. We do tend to want to grasp onto those things that we, material things that we can see or touch, or even something like an orderly home or relationships that are at peace or in sync, and they are good things, and and they promise us something, but they don't last. They're broken in some way or another. And I think, yeah, do I tend to go about my relationship with the Lord like, Lord, please help me fix this relationship, or please... and. Of course, he does minister to us in all of those ways because he is about peace and he is about orderliness, not in the way I think about it, but right. And, and so he, it's not that he's outside of the the daily concerns that we have by any means, 
but it's just that subtle shift from I worship Hmm. the bread of life to I hope you can give me the bread of life that it's not really you it's something you can give me but you you your function is to give me that other thing I hear you both just kind of tossing around that satisfaction idea and I think Jesus is obviously extending that uh, invitation of true satisfaction so when I'm thinking about how does this challenge me to look at Jesus I say to myself am I bringing my own holiness like the Pharisees am I carrying it around like am I going to the Lord's table to receive this remembrance bread as I'm holy and my justification is on me or am I coming as the weak and needy sinner with gratitude accepting his divine holiness that spreads through me that spreads through our community and not showing off my holiness but coming as a sinner who is unworthy but named worthy by him so i just see jesus opening up this table and saying i've got the spiritual food that you need and you should yearn for the banquet that i've put before you the banquet Mm -hmm. of grace well and i think part of what's scandalous to them too is you have in this whole chapter six, he is addressing two different groups of people. You have the crowd that has come and eaten the actual physical bread and wants more of it. And they're coming to him saying, sir, give us some more of this bread. They basically said, what, what sort of things can we be doing to get this kind of bread? Like, what are the works of God? We'll do them. Well, the implied in that is tell me what to do and I'll do it. In other words, I'm perfectly capable. You mm-hmm. tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. And, but the, the work Jesus says is to believe, is to have faith. He's speaking that to the crowds, but then he also, the Jews, Jewish leaders and those under their, their influence hear what he's telling these crowds and he, they grumble against him. I mean, who is he to say that he is the bread of life? Like what gives him that authority? And then in the synagogues, he's continuing to teach on what that means. And that implication is you only come if the Father calls you, you you cannot come on your own. It is sheer grace that you're drawn. It's sheer grace that you're kept. It's sheer grace that you receive this bread of life. And they don't want sheer grace. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. want the religious construct that they've been dependent on. Mm-hmm. And that's what they choose instead. So you love Peter's words at the very end when Jesus says to his closer disciples, are you going to leave me too? And where are we going to go? Mm-hmm. Nobody else has the words of life. Like he, he gets, I, I can't go to myself. I can't go to Joe Schmo down the street. There is nowhere else to go. I'm yeah. here. I'm, I'm captive here. Yeah. Just totally, totally new. He's bringing something totally new to the picture. So as we think about this, what are the applications for our everyday, real-to-real life? How does this change up what we're what we're doing, thinking, and believing? Real-to-real life. Here we go. So um, this passage was definitely challenging for me, but really I draw so much comfort from it. Um, I've been very challenged since my kids have been born. We got tissues for you, girl. Thanks, I draw so much comfort from this passage. I have been very challenged since my kids have been born to believe that Jesus is enough for them when they don't seem to fit into the quote-unquote normal mold. One of my children has some speech delay, and it may just be developmental speech delay, or it may be speech delay plus something else. At this point, we don't really know. We are about to enter into another season of therapy. And so this has just been on my mind and on my heart lately. But with him specifically, I've really had to wrestle through what are my own expectations for my son? Are these right expectations? I've had to think through the question, what really gives him value? What really gives us each our value 
is it our performance? And because that's what the world can tell us. Um, and that's even what I'm tempted to think sometimes is my child's value and how well he can speak or answer questions that the teacher asks him is my value as his mom in what other people think of me if my child doesn't perform to a certain level. And so what does it mean if God has given my child different abilities, giftings that lie outside of academics or sports or things that would to the world give them value? And so I draw great comfort from verses 28 and 29, which say, Then they say to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And so Jesus is telling us you don't need to perform. You don't need to be able to speak by a certain age. You don't have to have so many words. You don't need to put so many words together eloquently. You don't have to say all the right catechisms at the right time. And our value, as the rest of scripture tells us, is in being image bearers of God and being children of God. And so um, verse 44 also says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so again, it's God. It's God who draws us near. It's not our abilities. God draws us near and speaks to our hearts. And so going into another season and of therapy, not knowing my child's future or really the future of any of my children, I can trust that Jesus is enough. I can trust that Jesus fully will satisfy them. I can trust that he will draw them near. Um, I pray for that and um, just that it's not based on their performance or even what the world would say of them or their value, but it's their value is in Christ. And that's so beautiful and so comforting Mm -hmm. to me. And it's one thing to believe that for yourself as you go through hard places and you bump up against your own limitations or you feel rejection from people, but then it's a whole nother thing to feel that as a mama Um, and to think, Lord, do I really believe that? Do I really Mm -hmm. believe that you have been that sustenance for me in all of those places that you your life really is life in the midst of all of the things that may be taken away or all of the things that are limited. And I've experienced that myself and I'm pretty sure that was you But when it comes to my kiddos. Right. It makes me think, do I really think that was you or do I think that that was somehow the way I managed my own life or I made good on whatever limitation or mm. you know, barrier that was presented to me that somehow I overcame that And as moms, we think, how can I help my kid? Do I really trust that the Lord provides in those places? God has almost had to prove it to me in a deeper way when it comes to my kids. But he's good to do so. It is such a crux of that passage. Are we going to accept the Sabbath rest of the cross? Or are we going to continue to muscle our way through it? And I feel like that is kind of what's behind that question is I want it like you were saying, Amber, I want to try to bring something to the table. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. That's not what I'm about. You don't bring anything. I am. I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much of John is just him saying, I am. I think my takeaway here is like you see the breaking of bread here in this passage. And so looking forward to the, you hear these echoes of the Eucharist in there. And so I think you see Jesus and the apostles. He gives us the action plan of how the bread of life that we can receive that with great thanksgiving. And we know our lowliness and our need, and we know our deliverance and unity with Christ. I feel like there is just such a unity that we don't always have in the front of our mind with um, 
the Lord's Supper and extending that invitation of the, to the community that this should be what is ever on our lips, that the Lord is good, that the Lord provides. He is all we need. He is our satisfaction. He is our joy. I mean, I think that's something that we've covered um, quite a bit today, and it's just worth repeating. And that is what encourages us to press on. We also see him breaking down barriers like he's, uh, again, here on this hillside. He's speaking to probably a lot of Jews, but also some Gentiles, um, the sinners and saints, like people that are coming in this genuine of faith and then people that are coming trying to offer up their works righteousness. Um, we probably have some rich people and uh, poor people. And he is there proclaiming his gospel. Like he is giving us the faith to ascend to his good news. He's giving us this attachment to him, this unity of Christ. And he's given the assurance of that he loves us, that he is going to provide for us. He's going to sustain us. So I guess I'm challenged to have that same invitation ever on my lips to tell the good news of Jesus. And he's the one who's made us worthy by the faith that he provides. And Psalm 34 came to mind, just taste and see that the Lord is good. Like he's giving us this very tangible reminder in the beginning of chapter six, and then this very spiritual reminder that he is the one who is good and blessed are we who take refuge in him. Yeah, I love that. Taste and see that he's good. I just was thinking about how y'all were painting that picture of the banquet. And when he feeds us the bread of life, how rich of a feast that really is. And I'm sort of thinking about my boys and how I will make this dinner that to me is really good. And it, yeah, I'm using great ingredients and a variety of ingredients. And I'm creating something that's beautiful. And they look at it and they're like, oh, what's that? Can I have cereal? <laughs> Oh, my word. <laughs> and I think, just take a bite. Try it. You know? And so I just, it's not like Jesus is begging us as if he needs us to affirm that he's good, like I need my boys to affirm my cooking's good. He doesn't. He doesn't need me to affirm that. He absolutely is who he is. He knows the holiness and the glory of what he offers. But he's inviting, taste and see that I am good. So when Peter says, where else are we going to go? I mm. think to myself, where do I go? Where mm. else do I go to feast? Or where else do I go to try to pull in that life? Is mm. it those things that you mentioned? You know, yeah, do I want control in my home? Do I want order? Do I want to look a particular way or be perceived a particular way? Or my child to get into a particular college or whatever? Is that where I'm going to feast? Is that where I'm going to feed? Is that where I'm going to be nourished? And if so, I'm absolutely missing out right. on the glorious provision. So I think for me it is, and it, the answer is yes, I am. I will default to the cereal when there's a grand feast to be had instead. I love that. Heather, thank you for being with us today. Such a delight to hear some of your story. You're welcome. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you're cooking your next banquet dinner or feasting on the couch on your charcuterie board. We're coming over, Heather. All right, next week, Nancy Click and Kevin Barrow will be joining us to talk about Jesus, the light of the world, in John chapter 8. We hope you will listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again A season of pure shining To cheer it after the rain 